There's a lot of themes that I love to sing about and love to talk about. Christmas is one, and that's coming. Uh, the Gospel is another. Could love talking about that. Uh, one of the others that I think a lot of us have a favorite as the coming of Christ. And we're going to spend some time on the topic of the coming of Christ for several weeks here. Uh, so let's start with a passage that might surprise you, Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, go to verse 19, if you're waiting for a number to punch into your uh, electronic Bible. Hebrews 10, 19, I'm going to read through verse 25. Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another unto love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Heavenly Father, as we open up your word today and talk about the promises that you've made to us, we anticipate the Savior coming. And your scripture speaks much about that. I pray, Lord, that as we spend time in this passage and others that relate to it, that you might encourage our hearts. Give us an appetite, a desire that cannot be quenched until our Savior comes to get us. Just drive us to the cross again. Drive us to the work that you're doing in our midst. Drive us to, again to the promises of the future, and in that, Lord, give us that confidence that we have, because you always keep your word. Help us as we study it today, in Jesus' name, amen. I, I have a title for this sermon, I call it, The Coming of Christ in Three Stanzas and a Chorus. How many songs do we have in our hymn book on the coming of Christ? I, I just love that. Usually there are three stanzas, and there are a chorus. But you know what a stanza is, don't you? Just to be technical for a minute. Uh, from Merriam-Webster's Dictionary Online, if you need to look it up and check, the meaning of a stanza is a division of a poem consisting of a series of lines arranged together in a usually reoccurring pattern of meter and rhyme. You got that? Piece of cake. In music, the stanza is the verse. Generally, how we find it. The chorus, I found this interesting, is the hook. The chorus is the hook. Now, I tried to simplify that because I, the more I studied, I actually, it got more complicated. I kept trying to say, give me something simple I could work with, and you know. But the more I studied it, the more complicated it got, and it was kind of like going into your garage with your car to change the oil, and then you have transmission parts all over the floor. That's what it felt like to me, trying to figure out some of these things. And I, I, I just don't know how else to 
work with that, except that I thought that was a cute title. So there it was. Uh, I, I think it's appropriate, though, to speak to you about the coming of Christ. I think it's very appropriate that we talk about this. Uh, it's easy to say Christ is coming, and yet when you dig through Scripture and you listen to others who teach uh, as well theological circles and, and conferences and all these other things, uh, it's easy to come away overwhelmed. It's easy to come away maybe impressed but somewhat confused uh, you say, well, I believe that, but I don't know how you found that. Those kind of impressions come here uh, when you study any form of eschatology. My father is with the Lord. It wasn't that long ago, it seems, that the Lord took him home. Uh, the 13th of this month is his birthday. And he would have been 91 years old this year. For the last 12 years or so of his life, we would talk to him almost almost on a weekly basis, maybe every other week. Um, but his daily prayer was, Lord, take me home. Twelve years to pray that way. Some of you have been praying that way. And you know what that prayer is. Uh, many of our conversations with my dad on the phone, he would bring up the fact that uh, the world is looking pretty bad. And his conclusion was, it's pretty close to Christ coming again. And it's it's kind of hard to say no, huh? I mean, many of us feel that way, don't we? We see the news, we say, ooh, this is not right. Uh, we hear of the events of our world. There are things that we would say, and I'm sure that the generation before has said it too. We've never seen time so terrible as it is right now. And that's been a, a theme for a very long time, I know. But the question is, could it possibly get any worse? How many times after a large earthquake or a significant flood or a hurricane like we just had? Uh, I find it very interesting on even the news talking about this hurricane that went through uh, Florida this past week. They called it a hurricane of biblical proportions. And I was looking all over for a hurricane in here. And I said, what, what? It's just funny how people say, this is, this is the mother of them all, or something like that. And we say, well, how is that? How many times have we said, after a disaster of some sort, we said, well, Christ must be coming soon. Christ must be coming soon. I really won't counter that, to tell the truth, because here's the reality. Each and every day that goes by, we step closer to the coming of Christ. We are one day closer than we were yesterday. That much I know. And so if I had a strategy for how to live in light of the day and in light of the coming of Christ, it goes this way. I am to live as if today is the day. And yet I am to live as if my job isn't finished yet. Those two thoughts come through my mind. If today's not the day, then my job isn't finished yet. Let me tell you what we're going to do with our study here uh, on the second coming of Christ in three stanzas and a chorus. First, I know that there are theological statements that are made in order to be precise. That's why they're written like they are. People have worked real hard to get them down to precise statements on, on what we call eschatology. I've got a doctorate in theology. 
but my emphasis was eschatology. I spent a lot of time in that topic working through things. And the other day I was talking with a friend, and we were discussing uh, some of the very tiny details of the millennial kingdom. And it was a fun conversation. But uh, I found even after a lot of study that some things are just hard to verbalize. They're hard to put into words. The reality is that we have a God who's bigger than our words. We try to be precise. We leave room for all of us to learn more in God's word, of course. But it's hard to say all that is there is to say when our minds are so much smaller than the topic. This is a big topic. A huge topic. There is technically two comings of Christ. I'll be technical just for a minute. We call the first coming as what? Christmas, his birth. His first coming was his birth. All right? Yes. Okay, we've got to start with square one now. All right. There's two comings of Christ. The first one is his birth. All right? And uh, the second one is his second coming. All right? We call it that. We call it the second coming. All right? That's when he comes to this earth to set up his millennial kingdom and to rule over this world for a thousand years. We're very particular when we note the second coming of Christ, which, by the way, hasn't happened yet. There are some who believe it has. But we don't confuse it with the rapture of the church. We talk about the rapture of the church. There are two different events. There are two different events. Even though the rapture uses similar terminology, and actually the rapture even uses the word coming. Did you know that? When Paul's teaching in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we could talk about this another time perhaps, but that is a passage where he's very particularly talking about the rapture of the church. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13, all the way down to the end of the chapter, verse 18. Um, But as he's speaking there, he says these words, and you're familiar with them. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you do not grieve as the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and we do, don't we? Okay. Even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. It's just as guaranteed as the death and burial and resurrection of Christ. That's a pretty solid guarantee, isn't it? Then he goes on to add, But we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord, there's that word, coming, will not perceive those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself would descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds, and so shall we, well, we'll meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we always be with the Lord. That's the rapture passage. That is 1 Thessalonians 4. It's also, again, spoken of in 1 Corinthians 15. There's a touch of it in Titus. But we have those promises in Scripture. And people would say, but you, you just read that passage in Thessalonians, and it didn't use the word rapture. 
Didn't see that word anywhere in there. Matter of fact, go looking all over your English Bible. You won't find it. So they say, then it's not true. I said, no, you got the wrong translation. If you read it in Latin today, you would see it. Because it's right there in verse number 17. It says in Latin, it uses the word for rapture. Now, COVID's not in the Bible either. Just a thought. It's funny how we put so much emphasis on one thing and then, well, it's not in the Bible, it's not there. So, all right. Uh, the word rapture comes from the phrase, we have the translation, caught up together. Caught up together. We're caught up together. And I think you prefer the word rapture. Then the Greek word, harpazo, which would suggest that you're going to be harpooned. <laughs> it's a motion of a harpoon that grabs you and snatches you quickly and you, it, you don't get away from it. Anyway, so I'm okay with being caught up and I'm okay with the word rapture. Even though the text doesn't always use the words we want them to use. I still believe it's true. So here's some of my logic, and I want to help you with this today. Uh, I'm not trying to change eschatological words uh, or terms or manipulate anything to just fit into a sermon or anything. Uh, but we've already determined the first coming of Christ was when? Christmas, his birth, right? Okay. There is another coming of Christ I just showed you. It's called the rapture. That is another coming of Christ. And then there is a final coming of Christ. And that is when he returns to this earth to set up his kingdom. The distinction includes the fact that the first coming of Christ, he came to the earth. The rapture has him coming in the air. The second coming, which we call it that, has him coming back to the earth. So that's why we make the two comings so specific. The first coming of Christ was to the earth to be born. The second coming to the earth to rule. Both of those are earth-related. The rapture is up in the sky. <laughs> so that's why it normally it's not called or coming one, coming two, and coming three. Even though it uses the same terms, coming. So, this is my change of, of terms so I can speak to you and tell you which one I'm talking about without confusing you. The first coming, another coming, and the final coming. All right? Those are the terms I'm going to use. And yet, all the while, those are the stanzas. We're going to look at each one and how they're, what we expect from Scripture. And then finally hit you with the chorus every week. The hook. And you're going to be surprised a little bit by this, maybe. But the hook to all of these are, the righteous man shall live by faith. The righteous man, or the just, shall live by faith. You say, huh? How does that go together? Watch, this is fun. This is a lot of fun. Don't be surprised to find that chorus always close to a passage that talks about the coming of Christ. That's what I find very interesting about this thing. Hebrews chapter 10. We've already read verse 19 through 25. Emphasize the end of verse 25. Look at it again. You see it? We have to do all this all the more as you see what? The day drawing near or approaching, right? It's coming. A day is coming. That day is approaching. And that day is a motivator. Is a motivator behind the actions we have 
like in verse 19 through 22. Drawing near with a sincere heart to our high priest Jesus Christ. We're to do that with full assurance of faith. Isn't that what it says? It's a motivator for us holding fast to our confession. Verse 23. Look at there. We're to do it without wavering, right? Why? Because he who promised is faithful. It's a motivator in verse 24 for stimulating one another on to love and good deeds and even assembling together and encouraging one another. So all this is in light of the fact that the day is drawing near. The day is drawing near. We ought to operate in full assurance of faith. We ought to operate without wavering in hope. We ought to stimulate each other to love. Did you notice the three? Faith, hope, love. All three of those are anchored to the fact that the day is coming. The day is coming. The context of this is very important. If you go into chapter 10, and you start working your way through this passage, you see he's talking about Jesus Christ, our high priest. He's given a sacrifice. Look, look at verse 10 through 12, for example. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily ministering, offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, notice, sat down at the right hand of God. That's one way to say it was finished. It was finished. He sat down at the right hand of God. And so it's all done, right? Nothing else to go on with. Finished. Except you pull up verse 13 and start to walk through there. What does it say? He's waiting. Waiting? What is this? Waiting for the time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. Do you have all capital letters in that phrase? Some of your translations do this. When you see all capital letters, that's not just to say, hey, take notice. (laughs) That's actually to say, this is an Old Testament verse I just quoted for you. Right? When you see that, you should automatically say, oh, this is from the Old Testament. Right? So I traced it. That's Psalm 110, verse 1. And you might have a studied Bible that has the reference there next to it. Psalm 110, verse 1. Let me read it to you. Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. See how it fits? Until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter in Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power in holy array. From the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. I find it very interesting. That psalm is talking about the second coming of Christ, his rule, his reign in the millennial period. And guess how the priesthood of Christ is woven right into it? Just like Hebrews 10 is doing. It's a passage on his priesthood, but it can't stop. Right there, without talking about his second coming of power. 
And it goes on to say, The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He shall shatter the chief men over a broad country. You get the feeling of it, don't you? Psalm 110 is a picture of the power and the rule and the reign of Christ. Has that happened yet? All the enemies shattered? No, not yet. Hasn't happened yet. So, on one side of our passage in Hebrews that we're looking at here in verse 19 on, one half, the first half, speaks about Christ as the high priest, and yet Christ is coming to rule and to reign. Now, what's on the other side of it? Well, when you're still going through this passage, we see speaking about his final coming. Verse 16. Let's go over there for a minute. This is the covenant that I will make with them, and after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart, and on their mind I will write them. And then he says in verse 17, And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. We remember, if you were here a couple nights ago, on Sunday night we were talking about the new covenant. That's Jeremiah 31, verse 31, 2, and 3. And what he's talking about there is a covenant that God has made in the Old Testament with the Jews that is fulfilled when Jesus comes again. He will change that nation. What a great picture this is going to be. The nation of Israel will be saved spiritually. They will know Christ is their Messiah and recognize that and they will be his people and he will be their God. What a day that's going to be. Has that happened yet? No, it has not. So, there's that promise woven into the passage. Verse 19, we've talked about. Notice how it starts. Therefore. Based on all that information, he starts with a therefore. All the motivation to serve as a believer in this church. The book of Hebrews was originally written, by the way, to Hebrews. Who are they? They're the Jews. Originally written to them. But they were believers in Christ. And they had a lot to overcome, by the way. Don't ever look down on them when you, you have to realize what they had to overcome to understand the grace of Jesus Christ. This book was written for their sake. But he kept bringing it back to, this is the motivation for Christian living. This is why we do it. This is why we do it. The day is drawing near. To the Jew that excited the socks off of them. They couldn't wait. What change that would be. And we who study it as well look forward to that day. When Jesus Christ comes to this earth, sets up his kingdom, and this world is changed. Wow, is that going to be great. He's going to rule. I'm looking forward to seeing that. But you know what's on the other side of all this? You keep in chapter 10. Persecution. That's not uncommon for the church, is it? Persecution, because they have faith in Christ. He talks about that from verse 35 on. And he says, therefore, have confidence, have endurance. Keep, you're going to receive what is promised. He says in verse 37, it's just a little while. He, for he who is coming will come and not delay. And then the hook. And then the hook. What do you see right after verse 37 here? In a little while, verse 37, he who is coming will come and will not delay, but my 
Righteous one shall live by faith. There it is. Right in a, a whole story about the second coming of Christ. Suddenly there's a reference to living by faith. Oh, by the way, if you follow the same kind of translation I have, or close to it, are those are in all capital letters? That's a quote from the Old Testament. That's coming from the Old Testament. Couple of places. Let me see what time I got. Go back with me to Isaiah 26 for a minute. I won't be able to spend a lot of time here, but I, I wish I could right now. Maybe that will be another week, but Isaiah 26. I want to show you something really, really fascinating here. He keeps saying, in that day, in that day, in that day. Let's find out what it is. All right? So Isaiah 26 is what he keeps commenting on. Let's see, where do I want to start? Verse 1. There's a good place. In that day. Well, what do you know? This song will be sung in the land of Judah. Now he's going to tell us what that day is. We have a strong city. He sets up walls and ramparts for security. Opens the gates and the righteous nation may enter. The one that remains faithful. The steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. You've seen that verse before. Thou shalt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. Trust in the Lord forever. For in God the Lord we have an everlasting rock. For he has brought low those who will dwell on high, the unassailable city. He lays it low. He lays it low to the ground. He casts it to the dust. The foot will trample at the feet of the afflicted, the steps of the helpless. The way of the righteous is smooth. O upright one, make the path of the righteous level. Indeed, while following the way of your judgments, O Lord, we have waited for you eagerly. Your name, even your memory, is the desire of our souls. At night, my song longs for you. Indeed, my spirit within me seeks you diligently. For when the earth experiences your judgments, the inhabitants of the world learns righteousness. Look at that passage. Wow. Though the wicked has shown favor, he does not learn righteousness. He deals unjustly in the land of uprightness. He does not perceive the majesty of the Lord. O Lord, your hand is lifted up, yet they do not see it. They see your zeal for the people and are put to shame. Indeed, the fire will devour your enemies. Lord, you will establish peace for us since you have also performed performed for us all our works. The Lord our God, other masters beside you have ruled us, but through you alone we confess your name. The dead will not live. The departed spirits will not rise. Therefore, you have punished and destroyed them and you have wiped out all remembrance of them. You have increased the nations, O Lord. You have increased the nations. You are glorified. You have extended the borders of the land. It keeps on going. It's a picture of His coming and setting up His kingdom. And what a difference it's going to be on this earth. Peter says it's a day when righteousness dwells. Oh, what a cool day that's going to be. When righteousness dwells. So as you're walking through this, he's just say, defining for you that day. That day. That's why the Hebrew writer brings it up. He says, in that day. In that day. He keeps bringing up that day. So, what is that day? In a very little while, Hebrews says. If you go back over there, 
Verse number 37. In a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. If you go to Isaiah 26, you will not find that verse. You say, but it's all in caps. Yes, it is. Guess where it's from? It's from Habakkuk. Habakkuk, what's that? That's a minor prophet in the Old Testament. He's kind of hard to find sometimes when you go looking for Habakkuk in your Bible. Matter of fact, here's a good exercise for us. Let's go find it. Find Nahum first, and Habakkuk's right after it. Does that help? It's right before Zephaniah. Does that help? Not yet? Page 1,690. Does that help? Boy, wouldn't that be easy? No, it's a minor prophet. You've got a lot of minor prophets here. Nahum, Habakkuk. There he is. Habakkuk. Let me talk to you about Habakkuk just for a few seconds. Habakkuk is sitting, as chapter number one starts, I'm going to use a little imagination. He's sitting, watching the local news on TV. He cannot believe his eyes. He suddenly cries out, Lord, do you see this? When are you going to come and fix it? And the Lord says, okay, I'll come and fix it. I'm going to send the Babylonians to smash Judah. Whoa, Lord, wait, 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 wait. Uh, Why? You know how people answer that way. They just can't believe their ears. He does that in verse 12. And then verse 13, he goes, why, 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 why? And he's just spouting off whys for several verses. Because he says, I don't get it, Lord. Why do you send somebody so wicked to punish somebody that's a little more righteous than they are? Just a few verses before, he was saying, these people aren't righteous at all. But they've still got more than the next guy. And he says, Lord, how are you running this world? I don't get it. Where somebody really wicked is going to punish somebody who is wicked because they're not living right today. So why do you use the more wicked people? It's a, it's a puzzle. And he's looking for the Lord to give him an answer. And the Lord answers, chapter 2. I skipped all the way through chapter 1, but that's the essence of it. Chapter 2, Habakkuk says, I'm going to sit on my guard post. I'm going to stand myself on the rampart. I shall keep watch to see what he speaks to me and how I may, repro- may reply when I am reproved. And the Lord answered me and said, write this vision down and scrap it on the tablet so that the one who reads it may run for the vision is yet for the appointed time it hastens toward the goal it will not tarry though it tarries wait for it for it will certainly come it will not delay behold as for the proud one his soul is not right within him but the righteous man will live by his faith what is God talking about he says your biggest answer to the problem of this world is the coming of Jesus. That's what this world needs. The coming of Jesus. Wait for it. It's coming. Wait for it. It's coming. In the meantime, walk by faith. 
And in case you're wondering, well, where do you find all this, Pastor? You go the rest of the book. You wouldn't be surprised, I'm sure, that the entire chapter of Habakkuk 3 is on the second coming of Christ. It's because there he is. He's saying, this is going to happen. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. Walk by faith. It's going to happen. Walk by faith. There is a concern that I know that you probably share with me. We like peace and we like justice, don't we? We like societies that do what's right, don't we? We like laws that are good, don't we? We read in Scripture, Blessed is a nation whose God is the Lord. We see all these things. And then we watch our news. We see the events of our land. And we say, Surely, Lord, you must be coming soon. You must be coming soon. Because if any time a nation needs the Lord, it's now. It's now. What if he chooses to punish the nation we live in before he comes again? Thomas Jefferson, that was a while ago, said, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just and his, cannot, his justice cannot sleep forever. Tonight we're going to answer somewhat of that question with the question that we have. Does Philippians 2.15 mean that the Lord won't judge us for the crooked nation in which we live? That's a good question to ask. But I was told that when you get to the chorus, you're supposed to step back and get the big picture of what it's all about. That's what the chorus is supposed to say. And the stanzas of our songs that we're putting together here, and we're going to develop it as we go, is that we live in a wicked world. Do I have to convince you? And yet, throughout the Bible, there's promises. And the promise is that Jesus is coming, and we believe that. Particularly, we also know that there will be a final coming of Jesus Christ to judge this world and set up his kingdom. And we, like John, would say, yes, Lord Jesus, come quickly. But each and every day that goes by, we step one day closer to the coming of Christ. And I am to live today as if this is the day. And yet I'm also supposed to live today as if my job's not finished yet. How do you do that? How do you live in this land like this? How do you live with this promise like that? How do you live among this knowing he could come and knowing that it might not be today? The righteous man shall live by faith. Faith. If you pray that the Lord would come today, keep it up. Keep it up. He doesn't get weary with his children asking if they could come home. Titus, that passage, we're going to look at this when we get there too. Titus 2, 11 through 13. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny, or instructing us to deny ungodliness, worldly desire, and to live sensibly, 
righteously and godly in the present day. While, and I'm going to give you the emphasis of the Greek here. It's a present participle. While constantly looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. You're to be living with one eye on what you're doing and one eye on the clouds for Him to come. That's what we're called to do. I'm to live today as if today is the day, and yet I'm to live as if my job isn't finished yet. We're going to develop all these things. We're going to look at the stanzas, and we're going to look at that chorus. We're going to see how those go together throughout parts of Scripture, talking about His first coming, His other coming, and His final coming. And all of those call for you and me to do one thing right now. Walk by faith. Walk by faith. And I'll keep working on this till we're convinced. All right? Heavenly Father, thank you for the promises of your word. There's so much here for us to learn. So very much to learn. And yet, your word does not change. Your promises are there, and they are as sure as the fact that Jesus Christ died and rose again. There's our confidence, Lord. There is our hope without wavering. There is our sure stand. It's an anchor for our soul. We live in a day and age that's pretty tough, Lord. And I know a lot of societies have had this too. But every society has been asked to walk by faith. Ours too. May we not lose sight of this as we learn as we go. Help us, Father. Help us to be people who live by faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.